Hello and welcome to the MedEd Podcast, a free audio lecture series that reviews high-yield medical topics frequently seen on the boards and throughout your career in medicine. Your success is our mission. My name is Will, and this is Episode 2, Muscarinic Antagonists, Part 2 of a four-part series on autonomic pharmacology. In the previous episode, we covered the basics of parasympathetic physiology, and we went in-depth on the parasympathomimetic agents that you need to know. Because we have no relevant physiology to cover, we're going to jump right into the pharmacology, but if you feel you may need a refresher on parasympathetic physiology, go ahead and go back to episode 1. As stated previously, we are covering muscarinic antagonists, also frequently described as anticholinergic agents. However, muscarinic antagonists are a subset of the anticholinergic drug class. There are many drugs in this class, and they are usually not broken up in any convenient way, or at least not in any of the material that I've used in the past. We are going to use two groupings today based on the site of action for these drugs, those that act above the diaphragm and those that act below the diaphragm. Before we dive into the specifics, let's talk about some general principles. Besides eye drop formulations, these drugs generally have similar side effects related to decreased parasympathetic tone. These side effects include dry eyes and mouth, flushing, overheating due to lack of sweat protection, constipation, urinary retention, blurry vision, tachycardia, and psychiatric changes. All of these symptoms are fairly easy to remember because they are the opposite of the cholinergic side effects we discussed in the previous episode with a few challenges that we will resolve right now. Blurry vision and psychiatric changes are actually common in both cholinergic and anticholinergic side effects, which makes perfect sense if you consider the fact that vision and complex brain function require a careful balance of neurotransmitters that can be tipped too far in either direction. As far as I was able to research, however, there is no clear mechanism for the onset of flushing due to anticholinergic toxicity. There is one theory that I like, and was intuitive for me. Anticholinergics block sweating, which leads to overheating. This increased heat leads to superficial vasodilation as a means to dump off some of the heat from the blood to the skin, and ultimately to the surrounding air. And it is this superficial vasodilation that is seen clinically as flushing. Typically, these symptoms arise specifically in the context of atropine poisoning, discussed later on. So let's get started with drugs that act above the diaphragm. We're going to further subdivide these drugs into drugs that act on the brain, the eyes, the heart, and the lungs. So can you name any drugs that act on the brain? There's benztropine, trihexyphenidyl, and scopolamine. Do you know what each of them treat? Scopolamine is for motion sickness or post-operative nausea. Often it can be found as a transdermal patch. Benstropine and trihexyphenidyl are used in the treatment of tremor and rigidity in conditions such as Parkinson's disease, as well as extrapyramidal symptoms caused by the use of antipsychotic agents. However, there is one symptom of antipsychotic medication that you would not treat with muscarinic antagonists. What is that symptom? Tardive dyskinesia, which appears as involuntary movement of the face, mouth, and tongue. Okay, so let's assume instead that you're treating Parkinson's disease with either benztropine or trihexyphenidyl. What are you going to be concerned about in this patient population while using these medications? 
So aging is a risk factor for Parkinson's, and the average age of diagnosis is 60 years old, so this disease is largely going to be selective for your geriatric population. Beer's criteria, or Beer's list, indicates many medications that should be avoided in the geriatric population due to an increased risk-to-benefit ratio, among other considerations. Medications with anticholinergic properties, including the ones listed for treatment of Parkinson's, are generally recommended to be avoided in these patients except for acute management of symptoms. Let's talk about mechanisms of action. The mechanism of scopolamine is not really understood. It might have something to do with decreased neurotransmission from the vestibular system or from the vomiting center of the brain. We don't know yet, so you shouldn't be tested on it. What about benztropine and trihexyphenidyl? How do they treat Parkinson's disease and similar symptoms? So Parkinson's is believed to be due to a high acetylcholine to dopamine ratio, in other words, low dopamine in the brain. So by reducing the actions of acetylcholine, these drugs help correct that imbalance. Same explanation goes for the treatment of the extrapyramidal side effects of antipsychotic drugs. Why does Parkinson's have low dopamine in the brain? Parkinson's is due to deficiency of the dopaminergic nigrostriatal pathway, particularly because of the destruction of the substantia nigra located in the midbrain. Why do antipsychotic agents cause a state of low dopamine in the brain? Well, we'll cover this more later, but antipsychotic agents act by antagonizing dopamine receptors in the brain. Alright, name those agents and their indications one more time. Scopolamine for motion sickness and postoperative nausea, and benztropine and trihexyphenidyl for treatment of Parkinson's and the extrapyramidal side effects from antipsychotic treatment. Okay, moving on. Can you name some muscarinic antagonists that are indicated for action on the eyes? Tropicamide, atropine, and homatropine. When acting on the eyes, they will come in eyedrop formulations. What effect will these drugs have on the eyes? So you'll get cycloplegia due to paralysis of the ciliary muscle, which leads to widening of the pupil or midriasis. Now I used to always get midriasis and meiosis confused. I can differentiate them by remembering that meiosis sounds like closes, as in it closes the pupil. So what are midriatic agents used for? Eye examination usually by an ophthalmologist. And what would be a major contraindication you should always think about when using a midriatic agent? Acute angle closure glaucoma can be precipitated in at-risk patients after the use of midriatic agents due to the iris being pushed into the canal of Schlem, which is the aqueous humor outflow tract. Alright, so tropicamide, homatropine, and atropine can act as midriatic eye drops, but atropine is less frequently used due to how long and strong its effects are, and is more frequently used for its other effects in an intravenous or intramuscular formulation. Atropine is sort of the poster child for muscarinic antagonists, so we're going to discuss it in depth along with homatropine. Atropine is an active component found within the roots of a plant known as deadly nightshade, or belladonna. Belladonna means beautiful woman in Italian, because it was used in antiquity to dilate the pupils, something regarded as beautiful at the time. A more common member of the nightshade family in America is jimson weed, and gardeners can come into contact with the plant and experience atropine toxicity. Over the last few years, homeopathic pharmaceutical companies have come under scrutiny for the use of deadly nightshade in baby teething products, though of course the name belladonna was preferred for marketing. While this may sound like a review of botany, these are important facts to remember because atropine poisoning is a life-threatening condition, and as you can see, it can come from a variety of unusual sources. So, aside from being a midriatic agent, what else is atropine used for? As we mentioned in the last episode, atropine can reverse the muscarinic effects of organophosphate poisoning. 
Atropine also helps raise the heart rate, which is useful in certain types of bradycardia and some heart blocks. Though it is not used for the treatment of bradycardia due to hypothermia and in Mobitz 2 and complete heart block. Homatropine has similar, albeit weaker, effects compared to atropine. Homatropine and atropine have one interesting use not related to treating or diagnosing disease. Do you know what that might be? Well, homatropine and atropine can be mixed with opioid medications to discourage abuse. Okay, so in review, which drugs mentioned are you most likely going to use as a midriatic? Tropicamide and homatropine are more likely to be used than atropine. Which drug also has important cardiac effects among other indications? That one's atropine. And then you have homatropine, which can be used in place of atropine in many cases. Alright, so we've covered eyes, brain, and heart. Now the lungs. Which drugs have effects in the lungs? Ipratropium, teotropium, and glycopyrrolate. Ipratropium and teotropium are indicated for the same thing. What is that? Symptomatic relief of obstructive lung diseases such as COPD or asthma. What is the major difference between ipratropium and teotropium? Teotropium has a longer duration of action. Ipratropium and teotropium are administered via respiratory route. How would you explain their mechanism of action? Well, they're muscarinic antagonists, so they're going to reduce smooth muscle contraction in the airways. Okay, on to glycopyrrolate. Glycopyrrolate can be given orally or parenterally depending on the indication, and is the only drug that we will discuss today that is indicated for use in treating both organs above the diaphragm and below the diaphragm. Speaking first about the lungs, we will give glycopyrrolate parenterally. What are we using glycopyrrolate for? Reduction of airway secretions to reduce complications in surgery, as well as in end-of-life care. When given orally, what other action does glycopyrrolate have above the diaphragm? It reduces drooling via antagonism at the salivary glands, which is especially useful for pediatric populations with neurological deficits. Okay, let's quickly review drugs above the diaphragm. Can you name the drugs that are indicated for the treatment of Parkinson's and the extrapyramidal side effects of antipsychotic medications? Benztropine and trihexyphenidyl, except they are contraindicated in the treatment of which symptom? Tardive dyskinesia. What about scopolamine? What is it used for? For motion sickness and postoperative nausea, which medications are indicated for action on the eyes? Tropicamide and homatropine mainly, though atropine could also be used. What effect do these drugs have on the eyes? Relaxation of the ciliary muscle, or cycloplegia, which leads to dilation of the pupil or midriasis. Which drug is indicated for action on the heart? Atropine for bradycardia and heart block. Which drugs act on the lungs? Ipratropium, teotropium, and also glycopyrrolate when given parenterally. What are ipratropium and teotropium used for? Symptomatic relief of COPD and asthma. What is parenteroglycopyrrolate used for? Reduction of airway secretions during surgery and end-of-life care. What is oral glycopyrrolate indicated for above the diaphragm? Reduction of drooling. Okay, that should cover muscarinic antagonists above the diaphragm. Let's move on to drugs that act below the diaphragm. So muscarinic antagonists that act below the diaphragm are essentially going to do three things. Treatment of ulcers, 
antispasmodics in irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, and treatment of overactive bladder. So can you name any muscarinic antagonists indicated for ulcers? Oral, glycopyrrolate, and propantholine. Why would muscarinic antagonists be helpful for treatment of ulcers? M3 muscarinic receptors on the gastric parietal cells lead to increased intracellular calcium, which then activates the proton pump and increases acid production. So antagonism of these receptors will lead to decreased acid production in the stomach, which can create a better environment for the healing of ulcers. Can you name any muscarinic antagonists indicated as antispasmodics in the treatment of IBS? Hyoscyamine and dicyclamine. The mechanism of these drugs goes without saying. We're just antagonizing smooth muscle contraction in the bowels. Finally, can you name any muscarinic antagonists used in the treatment of overactive bladder? Oxybutynin, tolteridine, solifenicin, darifenicin, and trospium. Again, the mechanism of these drugs is fairly obvious. We're largely just antagonizing smooth muscle contraction at the detrusor muscle. You may sometimes hear these drugs called bladder-selective antispasmodics. Okay, so that one was pretty simple and quick. There are just a lot of names to remember, so let's briefly review. Which of the drugs named today are going to be used for treatment of ulcers? Oral glycopyrrolate and propantholine. Which of the drugs are going to be used as antispasmodics in the treatment of IBS? Hyoscyamine and dicyclamine. And which drugs will be used to treat overactive bladder? Oxybutynin, tolteridine, solifenicin, darifenicin, and trospium. Well, that actually covers everything that you need to know about these drugs. There isn't a whole lot to know conceptually, but there are quite a few names of drugs that you'll need to recognize. If you feel uncomfortable after this upcoming rapid review, please take your time to read through these medications on your own. Alright, so what class of medications did we cover today? Muscarinic receptor antagonists, a subset of anticholinergic medications. What side effects can be expected from an overdose of one of these drugs, especially atropine? Dryness, overheating, flushing, urinary retention, constipation, tachycardia, blurry vision, and psychiatric changes. And what would you use from the last episode to treat these symptoms? Physostigmine. Great, let's dive into each medication. I'm going to ask you about a medication, and I want you to tell me whether it acts above or below the diaphragm, or both. Then tell me what it is indicated for, or what condition you would treat with it. Alright, so what is trospium used for? Trospium acts below the diaphragm and treats overactive bladder. What is teotropium used for? Teotropium acts above the diaphragm and treats bronchoconstriction in COPD and asthma. What is solifenicin used for? Solifenicin acts below the diaphragm and treats overactive bladder, same as trospium. What is scopolamine used for? Scopolamine acts above the diaphragm and treats motion sickness and postoperative nausea. What is oxybutynin used for? Oxybutynin acts below the diaphragm and treats overactive bladder, same as trospium and solifenicin. What is parenteroglycopyrrolate used for? Parenteroglycopyrrolate acts above the diaphragm and is used preoperatively to decrease airway secretions. What is tropicamide used for? 
Tropicomide acts above the diaphragm and is a midriatic eye drop used for eye examinations. What is trihexyphenidyl used for? Trihexyphenidyl acts above the diaphragm and treats tremor and rigidity associated with Parkinson's and extrapyramidal side effects of antipsychotic medications. What is dicyclamine used for? Dicyclamine acts below the diaphragm and is an antispasmodic used for management of IBS. What is tolteridine used for? Tolteridine acts below the diaphragm and treats overactive bladder, same as trospium, solifenesin, and oxybutynin. What is ipratropium used for? Ipratropium acts above the diaphragm and treats bronchoconstriction in COPD and asthma, same as teotropium, but teotropium has a longer duration of action. What is homatropine used for? Homatropine acts above the diaphragm, mostly used in eye drops as a midriatic agent for eye exams, same as tropicamide. It can also be used in place of atropine if it is not available. Finally, it is mixed with opioid medications to discourage abuse. What is propantheline used for? Propantheline acts below the diaphragm and treats ulcers. What is daryphenicin used for? Daryphenicin acts below the diaphragm and treats overactive bladder, same as trospium, solifenesin, oxybutynin, and tolteridine. What is hyoscyamine used for? Hyoscyamine acts below the diaphragm and is an antispasmodic used for management of IBS, same as dicyclamine. What is benztropine used for? Benztropine acts above the diaphragm and treats tremor and rigidity associated with Parkinson's and extrapyramidal side effects of antipsychotic medications, same as trihexyphenidyl. What is oral glycopyrrolate used for? Oral glycopyrrolate acts above and below the diaphragm to reduce salivation in pediatric populations and to treat ulcers. What is atropine used for? Atropine acts above the diaphragm and has several uses. It can be used as an eyedrop midriatic agent, though it is not always preferred due to the duration of action. It can be used to treat some types of bradycardia and heart block. It is the first-line agent for reversal of organophosphate poisoning. It is also mixed with opioid medications to discourage abuse, similarly to helmatropine. Can you remember which types of heart block we do not use atropine for? Mobitz type 2 and third-degree heart block, which are essentially the most severe heart blocks. What are some of the plant names that you should be aware of that contain atropine? Deadly nightshade, more commonly referred to as belladonna, and jimson weed. And what are some contraindications for anticholinergic medications? Two that we discussed today are patients with narrow or closed angle glaucoma and the elderly. I'm sure there are many others, but these are the main ones you need to know. Alright, that's all you need to know off the top of your head regarding muscarinic antagonists. Let's do some board style questions and get out of here. Today, I have two vignettes for you. Question 1. A previously healthy 8-month-old female infant was brought to the emergency department following a seizure witnessed by the mother. The mother states that the child has been fussier over the last two weeks due to teething. She states that she is very cautious of modern medicine and was reading on an online blog about the benefits of a natural remedy obtained from steeping jimson weed and then diluting the solution. The mother did this and had her child ingest the liquid. Shortly afterward, the child became tired, followed by the seizures. On physical exam, the infant appears lethargic, has an elevated temperature, pupils are dilated, mucous membranes are dry, skin is dry and red, patient is tachypnic and tachycardic. 
which of the following medications would be most useful in this patient? A. Atropine. B. Aspirin. C. Scopolamine. D. Erythromycin. Or E. Physostigmine. The answer is E. Physostigmine. This is classic anticholinergic toxicity caused by the ingestion of Jimson weed, a member of the nightshade family. Jimson weed contains compounds such as atropine and scopolamine that, when extracted and ingested, can have potentially life-threatening results. A similar process and plant are used in homeopathic preparations of natural teething medications, and some have had similar negative results in the past. Physostigmine is a cholinesterase inhibitor that increases acetylcholine and reduces the anticholinergic effects. An infection is not at the top of our differential based on the history, so erythromycin is out, and aspirin is contraindicated in pediatric populations, except for the treatment of Kawasaki's. Question 2. A 37-year-old male presents to the clinic with over a year of unexplained feelings of alternating diarrhea and constipation, as well as excess bloating. He reports intermittent pain that begins after eating and is relieved only following a bowel movement. When asked about the quality of his stool, he reports that it is non-bloody and seems to have a large amount of mucus in it. Further testing and colonoscopy yield negative results for colon cancer, ulcerative colitis, or Crohn's disease. A diagnosis is made and the patient is started on medications. Which of the following medications would most likely be helpful in relieving this patient's symptoms? A. Hyoscyamine B. Ipratropium C. Biperidin D. Solifenicin or E. Oral glycopyrrolate The answer is A. Hyoscyamine this patient likely has IBS, a diagnosis of exclusion based on history and the lack of blood in the stool and the lack of morphological changes in the mucosa of the bowels. IBS is frequently associated with mucus in the stool, as well as abdominal symptoms and pain that are alleviated following a bowel movement. Hyoscyamine is an antispasmodic muscarinic antagonist that is selected for the bowel and can relieve some of the symptoms of IBS. Excellent work. That concludes this episode on muscarinic antagonists, part two in our four-part series on autonomic medications. Please tune in next time when we cover part three, sympathomimetics. We are working as quickly as we can on these episodes, but we don't yet have a fixed release schedule for upcoming episodes, so just keep us on your radar, and we'll do our best to get you quality episodes as quickly as we can. Thanks, and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the MedEd Podcast. If you liked what you've heard, please subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. If you found any information to be inaccurate, or you have ideas for future episodes, or you would like to contribute to future podcasts, please email us at mededpodcast at gmail.com. That's mededpodcast, M-E-D-E-D, podcast at gmail.com. The song you heard at the beginning is called May the Chords Be With You by Computer Music All-Stars. The transitions came from a song called Where Was I by Lee Rosevear. The song you're hearing now is called Night Owl by Broke for Free. The MedEd podcast is intended for educational purposes only, and it is not intended to replace proper medical consultation from a trained and licensed professional. The improper diagnosis and treatment of disease can lead to injury and death. Contact a qualified healthcare provider about your health concerns. 
While we will strive to bring the most correct and up-to-date material, the information presented may not always be accurate and is ultimately your responsibility to verify. The MedEd Podcast has no affiliation with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, or USMLE, or any other affiliations for that matter, and the information presented here is not guaranteed to be representative of information presented on any examination or within the context of medical practice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the creators of said podcast. They do not purport to reflect the opinions of the University of Nevada Reno School of Medicine or the opinions of any other institution with which the creators may be associated.